Once again, a huge hug, hello, thank you, we love you, to our newest Patreon supporters, Nicole S., Linda I., and Jean S. from Portland, Oregon, Heidi B. and Autumn G. from Salem, Oregon, Sarah M. from Wishram, Washington, Kayleen R. from Plantation, Florida. Thank you guys so much. Your support means everything to us. And if you want to hear your beautiful name, leave our beautiful mouths. Then sign up at Patreon.com and search for Murder in the Rain. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN. And you're listening to Murder in the Rain. In the early 1980s, several girls went missing in the Salem, Oregon area. Some disappeared with hardly a trace while others turned up dead. An 18-year-old recent high school graduate disappeared while delivering pizzas on the night of July 4, 1982, leaving behind her car with the engine still running. The hunt for her abductor would lead those working on the case down many paths, but no one expected how it would be connected to multiple murders years later. In today's episode, we explore the cases of Sherry Eyerly, Rebecca Darling, and Catherine Redman, three young women who were taken when their lives were just beginning. Alicia, as you know, we cover many episodes for Patreon. Sometimes the cases don't have murder or they don't have a ton of information online, so they make for the perfect 15 to 20 minute episodes. On occasion, they get a little bit longer, but for the most part, they're bite-sized. Now, I know what's happened to you, but sometimes what we think is a mini turns into a full-length episode because you end up stumbling so on... So many times. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's not a whole lot to this. Right. Oh, just kidding. Well, that's what happened to me with this case. What I thought was just a cold case that was finally solved ended up being much more pervasive than anticipated, and I thought it would make a great episode for today. And it's like it's meant to be because the case happened to take place on the 4th of July, and this episode is airing just two days after our Independence Day in 2021. Now, our Patreon listeners are also aware that for the last few months, I've been really into doing what I call the Welcome To series, where I select a city or town that one or more Patreon listeners live in, I find a crime, and I tell you about it. And I believe we even talked about that a little bit in our anniversary episode. We sure did. I, of course, give a shout out to the Patreon member and I talk a little bit about the history of the area. I try to dig up some random or quirky facts before diving into the case I researched. And today is no different. This episode is dedicated to our Patreon members, Heidi B. and Autumn G., who reside in the Willamette Valley city of Salem, Oregon. Oregon's capital. Well, you just stole my thunder on that. Oh, heck, I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, now for the obligatory quick highlight of Salem, Oregon, the second most populous city in Oregon and also our state's capital. I know Alicia knows this, but Josh and listeners, did you know that Oregon is the only state that has a flag with two sides? Our flag is navy and gold, and on one side we have our state seal, and on the other side is a beaver, our state animal. And side note, I think there's only one country that also does that. Ooh, we're very exclusive. (laughs) Since the year 1861, Salem has been the permanent home of the Oregon State Fair, which rumor has it is back this year. I know. I can't wait for Templeton's Feast. Okay. For the listeners, we do this thing where we just go to the fair and eat. (laughs) Everybody buys whatever they want and you bring it to the table family style. Although I always get multiple elephant ears because I like to have one to myself. (laughs) 
Behind my voice, you can hear the Regal State song, Oregon, My Oregon, performed by the Willamette Master Chorus. This has been our state song since 1927, and as regal as it is, it was only last month that Oregon legislature approved a change in the line in the lyrics that was definitely racist. The lyrics were written by John Andrew Buchanan and the composition by Henry Bernard Murdoch, and it was created as a submission to a songwriting contest in 1920. The song gives me very patriotic vibes. You know what else gives me patriotic vibes? The 4th of July. Now, I'm not a big fan of this holiday, not because I'm unpatriotic, but I really just don't like fireworks, you know, forest fires, scared animals. And I also don't like being hot. And that day always seems to be hot and I nearly get a sunburn every single time. If you are the 4th of July type, then you would love Salem. Well, on a normal year, because there is no end to the number of things you can do between the parades, fireworks, barbecues and the annual Cherry Fest. There's really something for everyone. However, when I think of Salem and the 4th of July, I think of a murder case from the year I was born, one that was featured on one of my childhood favorite shows, Unsolved Mysteries. Now, I know we talked about that when we kicked off the podcast, kind of what got us into podcasting in true crime or just true crime in general. And one of mine was Unsolved Mysteries. I love that show. You've mentioned liking it as well. Yeah, I only saw a couple episodes as I'm being significantly younger than you. Oh, please. She's um, one and a half year younger than I, me. Yeah, it was too scary for me, but. Well, not me. And just a little background. Around the age of eight, I started to complain to my mom that I didn't like my babysitter. So my mom was a single mom. She was a bartender and a cook. And so she spent a lot of time there. And I would have to go to this babysitter and I hated it. And a lot of times I would have to stay the night. So after complaining for years around age eight, she let me start staying home alone. And her friend would come check on me on Saturday nights and she'd either stay the night with me or just tuck me in and I'd go to bed. But every time we'd either watch horror movies or unsolved mysteries. So it's close to my heart. There are a handful of episodes that I remember quite well, but one in particular was close to home and all but too real for me. And that was the fourth season, which aired in 1991, episode 27. The episode featured a Salem teenager who disappeared while delivering pizzas. So I decided to revisit the case, which has since been solved. And boy, was there a lot more than I anticipated. On the 4th of July in 1982, two separate men called police to notify them of something concerning they had seen that night. Just after 10 p.m., both men called to report that they saw a seemingly abandoned blue and white Domino's pizza delivery car on River Haven Drive South in Salem. The car's driver door was wide open, the engine was running, and several boxes of pizza were strewn across the ground. What they didn't see was a driver. When police arrived, they realized what the men reported was true, and additionally, the car's emergency parking brake was engaged. They also noted that there were drag marks along the ground, and the marks were consistent with what you would see if someone were to dig both heels into the ground and try to, I guess, slow down an attacker, you know what I mean, if somebody was dragging you? So just two heel marks along the ground. A review of the pizza boxes scattered on scene offered police initial hope that there were clues left behind. One of the boxes had a tire mark across it, and the other had a boot print. Unfortunately, the tire mark wasn't in a state to be of use. However, police were able to analyze the boot print, and they got a general size and type documented. 
As they searched the crime scene, a Domino's hat was found in the bushes, as well as another item found on the ground, one that would allow them to identify the driver. A Domino's name tag and on the front was the name Sherry. Police contacted the Domino's store and learned that Sherry was 18-year-old Sherry Ierly, who had been out delivering pizzas to an address on Riverhaven Drive near Brown Island Road. Sherry, a slight blue-eyed brunette standing five feet tall and weighing 100 pounds, had just graduated from Sprague High School in June of 1982, one month prior. She took a part-time job at Domino's and had been working there for a month. Sherry is described as thoughtful, caring, fearless, and outgoing. In high school, she had a 3.5 grade point average and intended to go to school to be an architect. Working at Domino's was allowing Sherry to be independent and earn some money. In fact, she had recently moved out of her parents' home and into an apartment that she shared with her cousin, Cindy Woodard. Sherry's family wasn't thrilled with the job. It was common knowledge that pizza drivers can often be victims of crime, mostly theft. The idea that their teenage daughter was driving around alone with cash was not something they were comfortable with. At the time, there had been multiple robberies of Salem Domino's drivers just in that year alone. In one situation, an escaped convict ordered a pizza to an empty apartment, and when the driver showed up, he held a 22 to him and robbed him of cash and pizza, items worth a total of $100. Despite this knowledge, Sherry wanted to work the job. After returning from a week-long vacation at Lake Shasta in Northern California with her family, she grabbed a shift delivering pizzas on July 4th when another girl had called out for her shift. After speaking with the manager that night, investigators learned that Sherry took out a delivery of three destroyer pizzas around 9.30 p.m. So there was just 30 minutes between leaving the store and when the first witness saw her abandoned car. Earlier that night, a man had called to order three pizzas. The Domino's employee who took the call described the caller's voice as a middle-aged man who claimed his name was Dunbar. The man appeared to be talking to another person in the room while on the call as the Domino's employee could hear muffled talking when he asked the caller what type of pizza he wanted. The caller also mentioned that they had ordered from the store before and a girl in an orange Volkswagen delivered it and she was familiar with the area. Dunbar gave his name, phone number, and address before hanging up. It's customary for pizza stores to require a phone number, and this is primarily asked in the event the delivery person can't find the location, but also as a safety precaution. This is so that the caller can be verified by calling them back before sending a driver out to a new, strange, or secluded location. However, while looking into this case, workers at Domino's mentioned to police that only 5 to 10 percent of all orders were verified by callbacks. And that's likely due to sheer volume. This store in 1982 was making over 100 pizzas a day, likely staffed as light as possible. While police kept interviewing and searching for clues, they had a pretty strong theory about what had happened that night. They believed that the event was premeditated and likely two people were involved. They wanted to lure the driver to a secluded location where she could be taken without any witnesses. It's possible the intended victim was the other delivery driver, the one that Sherry was covering the shift for. Sherry then found herself driving alone in a dark remote area searching for the made-up address. The caller intercepted her to let her know that they were the one that ordered the pizzas. They believe she kept the car running, 
put the emergency brake on, got out, leaving the door open because she assumed she would return to it quickly, and then she would have gone around to the back of the car where the pizza was stored in the warmers. She then pulled out the pizzas and was likely attacked from behind while holding them. They fell, there was a scuffle, and she was dragged away into another vehicle. Police went to the Irely home to let her parents know that they believed Sherry had been kidnapped. Searches commenced immediately. Friends and family scoured the area, hoping to find Sherry or at least a clue that would lead them to the abductor. Police moved to set up roadblocks in the area, which would allow them to speak to locals and find out whether anyone saw anything suspicious the night of the 4th. That's when they learned that several people remembered two vehicles in the area around the time of the disappearance. The first was a 1974 Monte Carlo, and the other was an older model lime green 4x4 pickup truck with large tires and spotlights mounted on the cab. The truck had been parked oddly, with the back of it hanging off of the road and the front facing the road. So I imagine this would have given them kind of a a way to see both sides and a quick getaway either direction. Two days after Sherry disappeared, the same Domino's store received an anonymous call asking for $50,000 in exchange for the return of Sherry Ierly. The man said he would call back in about an hour, so the manager immediately called police, but the caller never called back. Police decided not to share this information with the media so that they could use the detail to identify a suspect later. Then a new tip came in. This came from a woman named Dawn Wilson, who said she had information that may pertain to the case. She believed her brother-in-law, Daryl Wilson, drove a truck incredibly similar to the one described in Sherry's disappearance. This was in response to several newspapers printing the descriptions of both vehicles, basically to get the public to respond. Maybe they would get some more leads that way. She told detectives she was suspicious because five days after the disappearance, Daryl painted his green truck brown. She went on to say that she also knew Daryl and Sherry were acquainted. Prior to July 4th, Dawn hosted a barbecue and both Daryl and Sherry were present. When Sherry left, Daryl asked Dawn if Sherry had a boyfriend and he said he wanted to ask her out. Daryl Wilson was a truck driver and had a history of drug use. The 30-year-old was divorced and had an apartment in Salem, Oregon. Police questioned Wilson after receiving this tip, but he denied knowing Sherry personally and only said he knew her due to the newspapers. When pressed about the barbecue, he said he just wasn't sure and he didn't remember her. He told them he only painted his truck because he didn't like the green color, indicating it was strictly coincidental. Police were thinking more and more that this guy was the culprit, but Wilson had an alibi. He was camping at Elkhorn Lake with friends, which was confirmed. This lake was about 34 miles east of Salem. When police questioned the friends further, they said Wilson and his truck had left the campground the night of the 4th and returned early the next morning, which left roughly nine hours that he was away from the campsite. Police brought Wilson back in for more questioning and brought up what they knew about him leaving the campsite. They suggested that he should take a polygraph, but Wilson refused. At this point, they were pretty sure they had the right guy, so they started surveillance on him, hoping that he would slip up. For nearly a month, police watched Wilson and attempted to find physical evidence that would connect him with the Ierly case. Daryl was aware that police were following him, and on at least one occasion, he interacted with them, suggesting he was considering taking the polygraph. 
He was adamant he didn't commit this crime. So while police waited for his answer on the polygraph, they got the news that Daryl had committed suicide by hanging himself in his apartment. After his death, police obtained search warrants for his apartment and truck. Nothing obvious stood out, but they did find two pairs of boots that looked promising. They hoped that one of the boots would match the boot print collected at the crime scene, which would allow them to have their very first piece of physical evidence supporting that Wilson was the perpetrator. At first glance, one pair appeared to be a very close match. However, the forensic investigators could not match it with certainty. Around this time, something controversial happened. At least I think it's controversial. This helped the case become one of the most famous missing person cases in our area. Aside from the thousands of unclaimed reward money to help solve this case, Sherry Ierly's name became well known outside of Oregon thanks to a psychic that got involved. About a month into the investigation of Sherry's disappearance, right around the time Wilson was alive and considered a person of interest, Psychic investigator John Catchings woke in his bed at 3 a.m. to find a young woman standing and watching him. She looked like a ghost and he felt like she had something she wanted him to know. Then a few days later, he received a package in the mail from investigators in Salem that contained information on Ireland's case. She just happened to also be the girl that appeared to him at 3 a.m. For some background, Catchings has helped police solve several cases. So in this era and how hot psychics were, I imagine police felt like anything was going to help them at this point. Catchings immediately felt that Sherry had been abducted by someone she knew. While his wife read the police report out loud to him, he had what he described as a vision. It was a white house. He ended up traveling to Oregon to visit the scene of her abduction, hoping something would spur him into finding the location of her body. Now, the story he tells investigators fits in a lot like what they have already theorized. A truck pulls up to Sherry, who appears to be lost, suggests that they were the ones that ordered the pizza. She gets out and she's dragged away. All of this can be gleaned from what police already thought. Now, Catchings is involved while Wilson is under investigation and the psychic is saying they have the right guy. It's Daryl Wilson. The investigator brings Catchings to Wilson's apartment and the psychic says, Yes, this is the place from my vision. And within hours of that visit, Wilson killed himself. Catchings offered nothing more to this case except to draw more attention to it and to a suspect that had zero evidence tied to him except for a similar truck. So this tie to the psychic is, of course, part of the reason that the case was featured on the 1991 episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which was immediately followed by nationwide notoriety. Most people believed Daryl Wilson committed this abduction and likely murder, but they had no proof and no body. Police did continue to look for suspects other than Wilson, but over time there were just no new developments and people began to assume that's all there was. It went cold. Over 20 years later, a cold case unit decides to take another look at the Ireley case. This is in 2007. The new team was very doubtful of Daryl's involvement, finally. Everything they had on Daryl was circumstantial, and he did not fit the profile of what they thought Sherry's abductor and murderer was. This team believed that the person who did this likely had a history of similar behavior. So they focused on known kidnappers, and what they found was very interesting. Their research led them to a case that happened in 1984. A girl named Catherine Iona Redman went missing after a Willamette University fraternity party in the early hours of Saturday, April 7th. 
Her car was found abandoned, the engine still on, and her body was later discovered nearby. Eerily similar. Due to the similarities between Katie's case and Sherry's case, the investigators were certain this had to be the same perpetrator. Lucky for them, they knew where he was, in prison doing two life sentences. William Scott Smith dropped out of high school when he was just a junior. While he was there, he was well known for a few reasons. He was big, he played football, and he had a bit of a bad temper. When he was young, he was a little bit heavy, which sometimes led to other kids picking on him, but as he grew older, it could be channeled into sports. At 14 years old, Smith stood 6'2 and weighed over 190 pounds. This was ideal for a kid who played both football and wrestled. However, once he dropped out of high school, his potential in sports waned and it was time for him to find what was next in life. He found a job as a fry cook, which he eventually lost. He then started a job as a truck driver, but his employment was sporadic. This is around the time that Smith turned to crime. His first arrest as an adult was for stealing a $3 hat from a park. This got him three days in jail. Soon after, he was arrested for reckless driving and had his license suspended. But of course, he continued to drive without a license, which got him charged with a felony only months later. He was convicted, but given a suspended six-month sentence and probation. The escalation continued and his dalliances with crime became far more serious with each year that went by. In 1978, Smith was charged with burglary when he broke into a store in Silverton, Oregon. Apparently, he broke into a Safeway and took over 26 cases of beer. This resulted in a one-year suspended sentence and three years probation. In 1979, a year after his burglary charge, a woman accused him and another man of second-degree sexual assault. The other man went to jail for the charge, but Smith, 20 years old at the time, was found innocent after the jury deliberated for only 15 minutes. Both men were also facing charges of tampering with a witness, but the victim never showed up in court, so the charges were dropped. Two years later, in 1981, Smith was arrested yet again, this time for exposing himself in Boise, Idaho. Boy, does this sound familiar. It sounds a lot like the I-5 killer, right? Oh, yeah. Just a young man letting his and friend like, air out. Nothing serious. Yeah, and just like petty crime after petty crime after petty crime. Right. Not the only similarity, too. They both had a lot of suspended sentences, and I think people might have question around that. So I just wanted to clarify. The reason for that is you get it on your record. So in the event you do something more serious, they can kind of hold you to kind of a bigger charge, I think. Yeah, but and get all, more sentencing to right. say, look, he's a repeat offender. Exactly. But also they were, had a lot of overcrowding in jails and prisons, so they didn't want to put people in for nonviolent crimes. Which makes a lot of sense. But at the time, they didn't realize the escalation mm -hmm. of, you know, people who show their junk to strangers, what that really means. Yeah. A year later, Smith was questioned in the murder of 14-year-old Lisa Chambers from Idaho. Lisa disappeared on the morning of November 10th, 1982, when she was walking to school. Her body was found a few weeks later in a cornfield by the Idaho fairgrounds. She had been raped and strangled. There were several suspects in that case, but not enough evidence to convict since one of the primary witnesses had dementia. As there was no evidence officially linking Smith to Lisa, police let him go and he eventually made his way back to Oregon. Now, this case was actually solved years later thanks to DNA, so I think I will probably cover that one on Patreon. 
after spending some time living with a girlfriend and getting into more trouble with the law over domestic issues, his girlfriend Tammy Worthing filed harassment charges against Smith, citing that he was striking her and touching her. Eventually, Worthing dropped the charges right before it went to trial. In 1984, at the age of 25, Smith found himself in hot water again. A 20-year-old woman went to the police because she was getting repeated obscene phone calls. Eventually, the phone company traced the calls that came in, and this was over a span from January 17th to the 31st, and the company found that they were coming from the Smith residence. For this, the judge sentenced him to six months in jail and fined him $500. While Smith is safely in jail for the nasty calls he's making, police begin investigating him as a suspect for two unsolved rapes and murders that happened earlier in the year. Both women had been abducted from their cars, both were raped, and both strangled to death and their bodies dumped. Katie Redman was at a Beta Theta Pi fraternity party on April 7, 1984. She was seen around 2 a.m. when she borrowed her friend's car to leave. By 4 a.m., the car was discovered abandoned at the intersection of Cordon Road and State Street. Inside the still-running car was Katie's purse. Later that day, one of Katie's shoes was found about a mile east on State Street. This led to a public appeal to try to gather information on the case, which ended up being fruitful. A woman had called police regarding an incident that happened on April 10th, a few days after Katie's disappearance. She had been driving down Lancaster Drive, a main road that runs parallel to the I-5, when she stopped at a red light. As she was stopped, a man driving a station wagon rolled into the back of her car. She was about to get out and confront him and swap information when she looked up and saw that he was already approaching her car. The sheer size of this man, well over six feet and 300 pounds, made her question her safety. Instead of getting out, she rolled her car window down and told him to meet her at a service station nearby. She pulled into the station and he drove on by. With recent news of the discovery of two murdered women, she trusted her gut and called it in. Police found this very interesting, considering when they looked at Katie's crime scene, they noticed that the car appeared to have been rear-ended. A theory that was being considered was that the perpetrator in Katie's murder used an accident to get the driver to pull over where they could then attack her. Four days after her disappearance, Katie's body was discovered in a flooded, wooded area of East Salem, not far from where the car she was driving was abandoned. Her autopsy revealed that she had been raped and strangled to death. Now that they had a suspect for Katie's murder, police take a step back and see that Katie's body had been left within four miles of where another body of a young woman was discovered the month prior. Rebecca Ann Darling worked at Circle K, a 24-hour convenience store in Salem, Oregon. Becky, the only employee working, was last seen around 3.20 a.m., but when someone entered the store at 3.50, there was no worker present. Her purse was still sitting in the store and her car was outside in the parking lot, which led police to believe she had been abducted. Her body was found a month later on March 25th, dumped in a river. Like Katie, her autopsy indicated that she had been raped and strangled. 
Detectives confronted Smith with the little circumstantial evidence they now had and were able to get him to confess. I find this so impressive. They literally had nothing physical. It was all circumstantial. One case was a little stronger than the other. And maybe in the future, they could have had DNA evidence. But of course, at the time, they didn't offer that. So they just went in guns blazing with a story they put together and he confessed. Just took that little bit of pressure, huh? Yeah. Makes you think, like, did he want to? Yeah. Like, he wanted to be caught so he could stop. Or maybe their theory was, like, so on point that he assumed they had other evidence. Yeah. During Smith's confessions, he shed a little bit more light on what happened with the women. Smith took Becky easily from the convenience store where she worked alone. He drove her to his home that he shared with his father and stepmother, who were out of town at the time. He then raped her and tied her hands behind her back before wrapping cotton rope around her neck and strangling her in the driveway of his home. Once she had died, he put her into his vehicle and drove her to a bridge that stretches across the Little Pudding River and he dumped her over the side. Her body was located just 200 feet downstream. Katie was followed while driving, rear-ended, and attacked when attempting to exchange information. During the interview, Smith confirmed the police's theory of rear-ending women to open up an opportunity to attack them. This abduction technique earned Smith the nickname Bumper. Smith was indicted by late April and went to trial for the murders of Katie Redman and Becky Darlene within a few months. I find that so amazing looking back on these old cases. They turned it around. By by summer, he went to trial. Yeah. Like nowadays, you don't know how long it's going to be till years. COVID aside, even before that, Mm -hmm. it took forever. Yeah. The Trials of Frank Carson, a new LA Times true crime podcast from the reporter behind Dirty John and Detective Trap. A defense attorney in Stanislaus County, Frank Carson was famously known for his caustic behavior towards authority as he relentlessly fought against a system he felt was broken. But everything changed when he became rapidly entangled in a mess of murder, one that named him as the prime suspect. In Turlock, California, a known small-time thief named Corey Kaufman is murdered, and the authorities accuse Frank Carson of orchestrating a complex plot to kill him. They portrayed Frank Carson as a lawyer who was capable of manipulating the law for his own brand of vigilante justice. Frank Carson claimed that he was being set up by the DA and police as payback for thumbing his nose at them for years. I'm really excited for us to share this podcast with our listeners because I think it's at the heart of what we love to discuss and ultimately what we end up spiraling on. Oh, yeah. Broken systems, vigilante justice, a setup. This absolutely embodies what we like to listen to and talk about. This is the story behind one of the longest and most bizarre murder trials in U.S. history and one that will make you reevaluate what you know about our criminal justice system. Listen and subscribe now to The Trials of Frank Carson on latimes.com or listen and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the benefits of the pandemic and the quarantine we survived is that a lot of people discovered their own creative outlet. True. I myself even started a new Golden Girls podcast, Always Be My Sisters. It's been a fun and easy way for me to be creative and share mine and Josh's goofiness with the world. And for every person who did start a podcast, there are probably five others who thought about it and never made the jump. Our advice? Do it. 
Everyone has a point of view and there is literally a niche for every interest. The hardest part of getting started is finding the right host. Well, not in our case. No, not that kind of host. A podcast platform. That's why we were so excited when we found Red Circle. Whether you are brand new and looking to start your show or you're ready to move on from your stale old podcast host, Red Circle is the place to be. The features are rad. When we were new to the platform, we took advantage of the built-in promo swap feature, which allows you to connect with other podcasts to help promote each other's show. They also make it so easy to add an advertisement, upload episodes, or read analytics, even for a non-tech person like myself. Not to mention, they make getting advertisers so much easier. We struggled for over a year on our old podcast host platform and didn't win a single ad. Two weeks with Red Circle and we had advertisers. If you are interested in making the plunge to podcast host software that is easy to use, attractive, and constantly improving, check out our show notes for a link to sign up for Red Circle. You can also find a link on our promo codes tab at murderintherain.com. The trial was presided over by a judge and did not have a jury. The defense tried to have the confession suppressed, but that was denied by the judge, and Smith was convicted of the murders and sentenced to two life sentences on July 19, 1984. Each sentence would require 20 years to be served before he could be parole eligible. Now fast forward to 2007, over two decades later, and a cold case unit is going back through Sherry Ireley's case and they realize Smith absolutely fits the profile of the perp in the Ireley case, and the crime is way too similar to the Redmond case to be dismissed. The team knew they needed to start by finding evidence that Smith was in Salem on the 4th of July, 1982. And lo and behold, they discover he had been pulled over shortly after Sherry's abduction that very night. Even with the information that he was indeed in the area, they didn't have anything more connecting him to Sherry. While investigators continued to look at Smith, they spoke to two different inmates who claimed that Smith had told them about the pizza girl he had killed. The word of inmates isn't always believed, so one of these guys actually rigged up a tape player to be able to record, and he hit it, spoke to Smith, and got him to confess. This worked. Police heard enough information that they took the tape to Smith and talked about the pizza girl, and he eventually realized he was going to have to talk. Wow, good on that other inmate. Seriously. I mean, and you I can wonder... usually get a deal even without something like that. But to be like, no, this guy needs to be caught. Well, it made me wonder like who he was in with. You know, a lot of people in prison, they're in for things that are not related yeah. to violence against women and children. And, you know, word on the street is <laughs> they don't take that well. And they yeah. want to punish those people. Yeah. So he didn't want to admit to anything until police were like, well, we could get you into a different prison. And apparently that's all he wanted. He was happy to talk once they agreed to switching prisons. What Smith told them is that him and his friend Roger Nosif were to blame for Sherry Ireley's abduction and murder. Roger had been the one who called the pizza order in, but the two of them had parked and waited for the delivery girl. Smith was the one that flagged Sherry out of her car, but when she went to get the pizzas out, both men grabbed her and pulled her into their truck. There were additional details, things that police did not tell the media in the hopes that someday they'd get to question the real suspect. For one, the pizza type. It was never released to the media that the pizzas ordered were the destroyer pizza. And Smith told them that, that he ordered three destroyer pizzas. 
He also brought up the call to Domino's after the abduction where he asked for a ransom of $50,000. Smith confirmed that Sherry was not the intended target. They were after the co-worker that had called in. They knew she drove a orange Volkswagen and they were prepared to take her. But when Sherry showed up, they went with it, right? Now, they did claim their original intent was to kidnap the other girl and hold her for ransom, not rape and murder. But he does go on to say that that's what they did to Sherry Eyerly. I'm surprised that he was actually the person that called for a ransom because when you first said that, I just assumed it was somebody. Some you know, other caller. Not a copycat, but you know what I yeah. mean? Just someone just hoaxing it. And then I wonder, like, what was his intent? Like, to keep the keep people interested in it? Was she still alive? Uh, yeah. We or don't like, know. we're not going to call the parents because Domino's is the company that has money, but. But then if that were the case, if he did really want it, why did he never respond to one of the many? I think they offered like twenty five, thirty five thousand yeah. dollars in the eighties. That's a lot of money. That's interesting. And no one ever called for additional details on that. Hmm. So I think it. I think it was literally to keep attention on it. He admitted that he took Sherry to his parents' house where he raped her. He then killed her and dumped her in the Little Pudding River right behind his parents' property, the same river where he dumped Rebecca Darling. Now the river really did go right up against the property, so it's it's. There's neighbors around. You go down the street. You can actually see this on on Google Maps. It's very secluded in terms of like trees are kind of blocking out senior neighbor's house. And then it's bordered by the river. So I am I can't even imagine all the things he got away with out there when his parents were out of town. Investigators, divers, and cadaver dogs searched the property and river all these decades later. Unfortunately, nothing was located. And there have been multiple major floods in that area so they think that's why her body was never found while police think it's very likely that smith had an accomplice nosif passed away in 2003 due to cancer he was never a suspect prior to his death and only identified as a potential accomplice when smith did so in 2007 william scott smith went back to court on december 18th 2007 for the murder of sherry Ireley. The judge asked him if his confession was given a free will, and he basically said, yeah, if they hold up their end of the bargain, which was the change in prison. They did, and he was deemed guilty and added yet another life sentence to his prison term. At this point, Smith is now officially a serial killer, and he's not getting out of prison with the murders of three young women tied to him. But that wasn't the last time he would be in court. In 2012, a newly formed volunteer cold case unit re-examined another cold case, the 1981 murder of 22-year-old Terry Cox Monroe. Terry was last seen at the Oregon Museum Tavern, a downtown Portland bar located on Front Street, on February 12, 1981. After spending the night dancing in the stuffy bar, she went outside to get some fresh air, but she never returned. That night, no one was really worried that she didn't return to the bar. Her friends just assumed she went home for the night. Her parents weren't worried when she didn't return home because they assumed she stayed the night at a friend's house or a co-worker's house. When she didn't arrive at work for her shift the next day, everyone was worried and her parents reported her missing. When police began their investigation, they located some of her belongings and her photo ID next to the Willamette River. That's just a block east from the bar. Searches of the area commenced, but neither Terry nor any additional items were located. Roughly a month later, on March 15th, 
Terry's body was found by a boater in the river about a mile downstream. An autopsy was conducted and it was determined that Terry died of homicidal asphyxiation. The 2012 cold case team had a long list of murdered and missing people in the Salem area whose cases were unsolved. Terry's name was on that list and they spent 10 months investigating what happened to her and looking at potential connections with other cases in the area. They concluded that Smith was the culprit. The case went to court in October of that year, and Smith pleaded guilty to Terry's murder and got another life sentence, making him have four life sentences. William Scott Smith is currently in prison, and some people might ask, why isn't he on death row? And the answer is simple. At the time he killed these women, 81, 82, and 84, Oregon didn't offer the death penalty. If you recall, in one of my recent cases, I talked about the death penalty and how it was abolished from 81 to 84. And lucky for him, because two men were executed in the 1990s. All right, Alicia. Initial thoughts. Well, it's interesting. The river thing is that part of what makes the Pacific Northwest a serial killer haven. Is it because we have so many forests and riverways and yeah, accessibility? Yeah, you can be secluded and you can hide bodies for a long... Look like at, a literal river in your backyard. Bloop. And there look at the, the Green body. River Killer. We don't know all his victims. We know there's more. Oh, yeah. And he, at the time, this this guy was considered to a possible candidate to be Green River Killer. Oh, yeah. Because they had... A lot of similarities. A lot of similarities, a lot of crossover, and they were in the same areas. Yeah. Um, so, which I found very interesting. But my initial reaction to this case is I'm very confused how this wasn't connected earlier to Sherry Irely. Mm-hmm. I found an article written in April of 1984. So they were talking about how Katie's body, she was the one that was at the fraternity party, mm-hmm. how her body was found. So we knew her car was rear-ended. We knew she was taken from the car and it was still running and she was found raped and murdered. How come they didn't connect it then yeah what that you no think? one went through and said let's look put, at other put an officer on the cold case list if there's anything else yeah with it a just running seems vehicle. so like duh to me and i just i think maybe it's partially the sensationalism of mm. of Ireland's case because i don't know maybe they just were so fixated on daryl as the suspect that they didn't even want to consider this well and it's so upsetting i happen to be re-watching don't f with cats and the for anyone that's not seen it they find a horrible video and they're trying to track the guy down and there's this facebook group of thousands of people and they find someone that they basically decide that that's the person and that person ends up dying by suicide and it's something again i wonder if these people that even start to put blame on people without evidence even think about they don't think about the consequences it's like okay you have people they obviously were in a bad space with Mm -hmm. their mental health i'm sorry if a cop comes to me with something and maybe i have a history of even small time stuff that would be so terrifying well especially when they are so confident Uh and they're and this is this horrible crime you're a drug user you've been in trouble with the law before you're going back to prison you see people go to prison for things they didn't do what yep. are you gonna think and if he's in a, a susceptible low place in his life yeah so to have two people and i'm sure they're just like okay it wasn't them and it's like one well, one of the articles died. was like oh no he's a heavy drug user and had depression so he would have killed himself anyway and it's like would he though <laughs> would he have if you weren't 
bringing in this famous psychic to right? pin it on him too. Yeah. That's scary. That's, that's awful. His life. I mean, and that's then his own family's turning him in. That's like manslaughter, in my opinion, putting pressure on someone that's not in a state that can handle it and you have <sighs> yeah. nothing to that's go a, on. That's a bold opinion, but I, I, I see exactly what you mean. Uh, and part of me agrees. Uh, I mean, we're seeing it, actually. Side note. We're seeing that in cases of online bullying mm-hmm. where people are being held accountable mm-hmm. for pressuring people. And it should that. be the same for cops or anyone else. That's where a very interesting you're bringing pressure point. on someone. How have we never talked about that on before? Nothing? Well, I don't think we've had a case like this. Yeah. But it's like. I just feel so sad for him. And I mean, the even Dawn, the sister-in-law, I, what she must feel. I mean, she had. I would have probably done it, too. He had the same car. He painted it. Yeah. He was. You know, he's kind of a, a drug user acting funky, and asking also like, about her at a party. Was he low IQ? Was he yeah. developmentally delayed? Was he like so many aspects to it? It's really sad. And so to just decide that you're going to go after a person and not let the evidence guide you can end up like this. And how is that death any less important just because it was at his hand via the pressure? Yeah. Just saying. Uh, you were talking about the the danger of jobs. My brother was actually a Domino's delivery oh, driver. Was he? Did he ever get robbed? Uh, he didn't get robbed. He did get a concussion because he had to work on an icy day and oh, went out no. to his car and slipped. And he came back in like half an hour later. They're like, where you been, man? He's like, I think the parking lot. Oh, my God. And he God. had a really bad concussion because he just whoop. The oh. feet went out under him. You know, they should require him to get those little spiky things. Oh, yeah. Shoes. My neighbor had some and I borrowed them when we had that ice oh, storm. Oh, that's smart. And I was able to walk and get myself birthday cake because oh. it was my birthday, remember? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so always tip your drivers because they're driving. So delivery drivers in general is one of the most dangerous jobs in America. Not should counting. should like police. You should have a partner. Well, and not counting, you're driving a ton, so accidents are higher. Right, it goes and up. And you're going to people's houses. My brother has stories of like, oh, yeah, I got this guy. He won't ever wear clothes when oh, he answers the door. Oh, you remind me of one of my favorite creepy stories. So I'm really into this podcast called Let's Not Meet. Mm. And it's basically real people's stories of creepy things that have happened to them. And at the end, they're like, creepy guy who tried to steal my pizza. Let's not meet again. Well, there's one episode, which... I was thinking about when I remembered this case where a girl goes to deliver a pizza to this very creepy house and they put a note on the front that says use the back door Mm-mm. and she was getting icky vibes and um, she ran into someone that told her not to go to that house just to leave. So she ended up like leaving the pizza and just running away. But somebody tried to chase her and it just it really got me thinking yeah. of how dangerous that job is. Yet we put basically kids in these mm-hmm. positions i mean luckily now we have all the technology of we've got your credit card your phone yeah. number your address yeah the that map. whole the whole need to call them back is moot because yes. you can connect it in the system but so on the list of jobs and i've i've seen this several times and heard this statistic and a list i found was actually uh listed at number 14 out of the 25 most deadly and dangerous Whoa, jobs really is being a cop is 14 Okay. Being a delivery driver. I thought you were going to say delivery driver. Is number seven. Whoa. It's twice as dangerous to be a delivery driver than it is a cop. And they're not trained really in any other way other than, okay, you take the money, don't go inside, and you better have a driver's license. And same with cops, you know, with delivery drivers, you're on the road a lot. So car accidents Mm -hmm. is a big part of uh, injuries and fatalities. But yeah, it is. It's, I know you've got cash. I know you probably don't have a weapon. I know you have food. I mean, we're, especially in Portland, we're in a situation where people are desperate for food, you know? And so it's Mm -hmm. like, 
every part of that. It's like nighttime. The, you're young. Like the one in here that I said was a convict. He stole the pizza too, not just the money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like uh, it's a it's an incredibly dangerous job. So tip well every time. It's well, a nice thing to do, but fun. also recognizing just how dangerous that is. You know, absolutely. I mean, you, they're little jobs you just don't think of have this high risk, and this is one of them. Unless you follow this case or heard a spooky story, I guess you don't really think about it. Yeah, and it's funny you're talking about the all the Fourth of July things and and hating the holiday because you hate your country. No. I'm kidding. I'm well, kidding. I'm kidding. My dad is from England. So. Oh my god, you traitor. <laughs> I just wanted to talk, uh, you know, being 4th of July, uh, we got uh, or I received a very interesting message that I thought this would be a good place to talk about of of someone saying that they heard us say, which we've said several times, and I say more often, of America sucks, dude. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I haven't said that. (laughs) Oh, okay. Maybe just Josh. (laughs) So in saying that, you know, uh, I've gotten several messages and, you know, the whole point of that is it's kind of like if your friend comes out in an outfit that's hideous just because you love your friend doesn't mean doesn't mean you're gonna say oh it's like you're perfect. gonna let them go you look out amazing if you love someone you'll try to correct it but so- also i i do think there are times when uh m- maybe mine and your sarcasm isn't read yeah which that's true it's on us <laughs> like we need to work on that we're very sorry we want to like get across what we're trying to say but occasionally i know you've said that in jest as a like, uh, we know. Well, we and know half just, but I mean, it's truly half just because it's the point is sure. things are broken and it's okay to say something. And you want it to be America. better because you want to be. Right. right. I love my friend. And so because I love her, I don't want her to go out in that horrible outfit. Okay. So that dress sucks. It doesn't mean America sucks. It means, hey, we got things well, we got to fix. Well, I will say the person that wrote most recently you engaged with and they got it. Then. Oh yeah, we had a wonderful you guys conversation. Had a great, I thought it was a great email exchange and that that's exactly what we want to happen is yeah. for someone to like take a minute and hear us out too. Yeah, so that was, I just wanted to touch on that for a second to just say, you know, America does suck and that's why we're gonna work to make it better. And on a note of a driver pizza delivery, I once had a friend who delivered marijuana. <laughs> With the pizza? With their pizza, yeah. That's she so was a smart. drug dealer. So the call would come in. Kind of like Loverboy. There's the movie Loverboy where you order extra anchovies and he comes and he has <laughs> sex with the middle-aged oh, women. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this person was kind of doing that. But I thought it was so clever because they could basically get paid for the gas mileage. <laughs> That's really smart. My school district never fires anyone because it's a school district. One of the only people I ever knew knew of being fired was our pony person, which is like the internal mailman. He goes to each school yeah. uh, and takes the mail that's, you know, oh, I got to send and this to that teacher. he was delivering And he doobies? was selling drugs while he was doing no. it because he was going to school to school. Okay, that's the problem is the school. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? That's pretty. Br- he's kind of like a. Th- he's within the school, but he do- he literally walks in, sets yeah, but down you the can't packages, have drugs and goes, within the school. <laughs> I know, but that's still pretty brilliant. You're it driving around brilliant. all day, so hey, delivery. You're drivers, getting paid for your side hustle. Do you know how much extra I would pay if, along with my snackies I ordered from Walgreens, they'd also drop like an eighth? <laughs> That'd be great. Forty extra bucks. Oh my god. Here you go. Okay, so I have to ask you. I know you like unsolved mysteries, right? Do you I, remember yes. any episodes vividly? Were there only any that one, like scared you or because I with you? only saw I saw it at my cousin's because like I said I was young so it was not a regular viewing for me and I was at my cousin's who were a little bit older and we watched it and it was two kids 
somewhere in a desert, they ended up going, some guy was like, go get in the shed. And they did. And he locked it and he shut and he shut the door and he put it, he set it on fire and killed them. Oh my. And it freaked me out and I did not watch it again. Well, I watched it even when I was scared. You know, I don't get scared easily watching that kind of stuff, but there was one. Well, I was like seven. So, no, so was I. I, I'm not that much older than you. A year and a half. Anyway, I saw this one about the abominable snowman. And it scared the crap out of me. Uh, But of course, it made me want to watch it even more. But the other one I remember I thought was so cool. It was this guy driving down a highway. He sees what he thinks is a naked woman on the side of the highway. So he stops and he goes to like see what happened and she's not there. But he looks down the side. It's like on a a cliff almost where there are trees and he sees uh, taillights. So he goes down there and there's a crashed car and the driver's a woman and she's dead. But in the back seat, her baby is still buckled in and totally fine. Oh, my god! And he thinks it was her ghost, like, leading him to her child. Wow. Because had it been in there one more day, it would have right. been dead. But I just thought, oh, what a good episode. That I think about it all the time. Also, back to your case, I found it so smart of that woman who, when she was rear-ended, asked Did him not to go get to the out. gas station. I don't know that I would have thought of that because you're just in the moment. You're like, oh, this is annoying. Well, I don't and think she is... would have if he hadn't have seemed so intimidating. Yeah, that's true. But um, I mean, that's. But that is. I, I don't want to give gut. kudos, but that's kudos to that guy because that's obviously um, it worked for him several times because I've been in oh, the rear it so many times and you just don't even Here's the thing. think about he, that. He said you're he like, did it all the time. It only ever once resulted in a murder. The other times it was. Right? No, twice. Twice it resulted in a no, no. Once it, it resulted in a murder. Usually he accosted them, right, or scared them, or sexually ass- assaulted them. But it is. I mean, it's smart on his part because when you're in that moment, he's automatically put himself at the upper hand because you weren't expecting it. Yeah. And then you're shaken. And, and... It's normal behavior is to get out and exchange. Yeah. But I think that's another reason insurance companies tell you to call them first yeah. and call police. Yeah. Because of that. Mm-hmm. It can be very dangerous. Um, you never know who's going to hit you yeah. if it's intended or accidental. So make sure you go to a public space if you're not, if you're yeah. on like a side road. Especially in the 80s. Good for her. Yeah. That's, I mean, that that's quick thinking. Well, and that is the, that was the key for them putting together that this mm-hmm. guy fit the description and the methodology. Yeah. I mean, without her, I don't know if they would have put it together as fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and good for her calling it in. I've definitely had moments not that severe, but where I'm just like, something's just kind of off, and I don't know if I should call. Well, or like not, if you see, but... um, I've called in a couple of drunk drivers before. Oh yeah, I call that all the time. I used to. You know, I'll follow them for a bit and make sure it wasn't just like you know you drop something. And, oh yeah, mm-hmm. but I just can't believe how bad it is. <laughs> bad, they like swerving everywhere. Oh, yeah. yeah, I remember my dad when I was a kid. We saw a drunk driver, and it was back when you had to use a phone booth. Oh, And we yeah. took the exit, got a phone booth. He made me memorize the license plate. Yeah. It was, yeah. I used, I honestly, I used to call them in anytime I saw them because I've been hit by so many drunk drivers. Well, and, and if you, like me, had a friend die by one. Right. It's very, very sensitive topic. And I saw, I'm like certain from how they were driving, and I got next to them, and they were, they appeared to be Latinx, and I was just like, I can't call the cops on you. Oh. I couldn't do it. And so, picture. but then they like pulled over and, you know, went to an apartment complex or something. And I was just like, okay, good. Get off the road. Cause I was like, I don't, that, I don't know what yeah, to do. I don't want to be the person Is to call. Is that a scenario where you just killed. follow them the whole time and make sure that 
they get some. Yeah, safe I just like honk around, be like, guys, look a, out, drunk driver on the road, make way. Or give him a talking to. I don't know, but I see what you mean. It's yeah. like, what's. But then again, someone's life is put in danger when you drink alcohol and get behind a wheel. I know. That's a, that's a, that's one of those what do you do scenarios. Call John Quinones. <laughs> I love that guy. I love that show. <laughs> Let's go watch it. Have a good night. Wait, we have a conversation to oh, have. Oh yeah, you're right. <gasps> wait, I'm speaking so excited. Wait, speaking of watching things. Oh yeah. We should watch like 24 hours of true crime. On Magellan TV, I have to imagine our listeners know what this contest is. I think I think one of you actually might have posted it in a Pacific Northwest True Crime group on Facebook. But I saw a post for Magellan TV's True Crime Dream Job, right, where you sit for twenty four hours, you watch documentaries back to back, and you post on social media about it. And I thought, well, heck, I'm going to apply because obviously we love true crime. We need content inspiration. Uh, so I applied and a few weeks go by, I forgot all about it. And Magellan TV reached out to me to let me know they selected me and us. You're a winner, baby. We're a winner. We're all winners because true. we need more money to get our tickets to CrimeCon. <laughs> We're a little bit short. <laughs> this is going to make sure. We, hey, we, we can even get that. That mid-sized seat if we really want. Oh, that's right. An upgrade. <laughs> no, so we, we're really excited about it and we want you guys to participate. So we're going to do some fun things over the week. We're going to have some Instagram posts, some TikTok posts. We have four three-month memberships to give away. So for three months, you get Magellan TV for free. I'm telling you guys, it has true crime, obviously. What else did you see, Alicia? Well, here's the thing with Magellan. It's all documentaries, which one, I love. Me too. And it's from all around the world, which is also super rad. And so you have totally different content than thing, you know, it's different stories than what we've seen here. And I was scrolling through the other day and they have a whole section just of shark documentaries. So I will like be I watching say, those. Shark week every week. <laughs> so I'll be watching a lot of shark documentaries. Um, yeah, they had a ton of nature, yeah. which I love. They're relaxing to sleep mm -hmm. too. Well, and they have a whole thing that's just relaxation and they have space and earth and true yes. crime. So many cool documentaries that I'm going to dive to dive yes. into on my free time. So when is all of this happening that everyone can join us in watching? We are kicking things off Saturday morning. So we will tell you the exact time, but we are unlocking one documentary for everyone for free. So you can try Magellan off out off. Try try it out. Anyway, Magellan's an unlock. I believe it's the Northwest Killer. Mm -hmm. So that will be free for you guys to watch with us. And I think, Alicia, are we going to do a little giveaway if they watch it? Yeah, I think I think we'll be uh, posting some stuff. So yeah, so July, that's July 11th, right? July 10th, July. this coming Saturday. So July 10th is when we'll be watching and we're going to, you know, be putting stuff on our Instagram that you'll want to be sure to check I'm gonna out. I'm going to live stream on TikTok. We're going to live stream, yeah, M, Murder in the Rain. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we're going to be giving away. So if you watch that episode, you just might win What's a your... free subscription. Let's give them a subscription and maybe a t-shirt. Oh, I'd like that. I think that would be fun. I just ordered some new shirts. We have a lovely Patreon fan who is going to do some custom tie-dyeing for us. Oh, right. And I hope this becomes a... A fruitful venture for the for all of us because yeah, it's going to be so she does some fun. rad work. I'm actually let's repost some of her work so people can okay. see it because we're going to be rocking those soon. I have to send her our shirts and then she'll tie dye <laughs> them for us. Uh, but yeah, well, let's give a shirt, let's give a subscription, and then we're going to do some posts. So make sure you follow us and um, start yeah, and watching with Emily's with us. I, live streaming. You can 
you're gonna see you a whole see, lot of me going <gasps> what the? you can see how exciting it is to watch your favorite podcasters sit on a couch and eat snacks and forget you're watching and probably pick their nose or yeah something. and be watching tv and like super involved you'll and... see my double chin <laughs> because because i do this a lot <laughs> you can't see me but you'll I'll see me to, on the live stream i'll try to remember to wear pants who needs pants when let's just crank the ac and wear blankets perfect no pants <laughs> Yeah, join us. We're going to do it for two days. We have 48 hours to complete 24 hours of documentaries. We have already watched a couple. They're really, really good quality. So I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Yeah, that's something else I really loved about going into the app and playing around. I really, no offense, Magellan, I had some concerns because even on um, on ID channel, sometimes you get a a lower production right and you're like oh this is a little hard to watch so i was i was genuinely nervous going in of like well the app we're gonna have nice. to watch 24 hours and once we watched one episode i was like oh this is going to it's rule be, it's, it's be done awesome. so well it's high quality super interesting stories and we actually watched the crossbow killer which emily has done a mini for on patreon i did and i shall be creating a tiktok version of it any day now so Come, come follow me. So join us. Follow us on Magellan. <laughs> what do we have a stake in the company now, I think, huh? <laughs> well, I just want them to want to make us a show. That's oh, all. Oh, yeah. We just want our own show. That's it. <laughs> Magellan, we love you. Please. Please put us on television. Please. We love you, Magellan. <laughs> all right. Well, see you guys Saturday. <laughs> Unless I'm horny. Oh. Then I do well. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you get too hot, let us know. We'll make you horny. <laughs> Gross. I do not want to. That just takes it too far. <laughs> we can't have a couple and a thruple. I'm sorry that I'm constantly making you horny. <laughs> I'm sorry I look so much like my parents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish they had. That'd be fun. We made a, we did a celebrity name for our kid. Joe and Shelly. This is Joey. <laughs> Or showy. <laughs> or jelly. <laughs> what would yours be? Uh, Veef? What? Your, if your parents gave you their celebrity oh. baby name. Or Valith. Valith. Yeah, Valth. Vath. 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 I like Vath. Vath or calorie. calorie. <laughs> What's yours, Josh? Uh, oh, boy. Gilsey? Gib Gibsy? Gilsey. Well, his name's Gilbert, so it'd be Gilsey or Nanbert. I like Nanbert. <laughs> Nanbert. <laughs> he, that guy's a real Nanbert. If you know what I'm saying? It, w it would fit for sure. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Gilsey Nanbert. <laughs> Man, Gil shit we talk about. Our flag has navy and gold, and on one side it has our gold state state. What? A review of the pizza boxer. What boxers? <laughs> it's a pair of boxers with pizza on it. Oh, <laughs> pair of pizza wearing boxers. <clears throat> yeah, pair of pizza. Pair of slice pizza. Of slice of pizza. <laughs> or a pair of slices of pizza. Oh boy. Boxers. Or a slice of pears wearing pizza <clears throat> pants. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> she grabbed a shift delivering pizzas on July fourth when another girl had called in. Ah.
And they said, ma'am, we can't serve that. I was reading old articles and that that was one of the things, an article about like safety of the pizza store, which yeah. was interesting. I think they must have got a lot of flack after this. You know who I think probably did this? Benoid. Thank you. Ye must avoid him. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> have you seen the Noid? The Noid's back. What the fuck are you talking Avoid about? Avoid the him. Noid. Avoid that Noid. The Domino's Noid? <gasps> like Red Devil Rabbit with the big ears. He was around in the 80s and he would like uh, sabotage so that he'd get the pizza and you wouldn't. I, so you had to I avoid the Noid. I didn't have Domino's until I was in college. You had a television yeah, and a radio. It sounds like you watched a lot of it. <laughs> Avoid the noise. I don't think they aired those commercials and now during he's Unsolved back. Mysteries. And they have a little robot car that's oh. going to kill somebody. <laughs> that is a much better name somehow. Domino's. Like, eat one and you have to eat a bunch more. <laughs> Domino and banks. <laughs> In 1979, a year after his burglary charge, a woman accused him and another man. Who do you want to know? <laughs> like, of what? I, what? Lost, I lost my brain just stopped. What were they accused of? It was like, you can't read, you can't talk, you don't know nothing. You don't get nothing. The judge asked him if his convention... Uh, convention. <laughs> the judge asked him if his convention... Oh my God, what the fuck? Spotify. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. <laughs> Please put that in. <laughs>